Hey everybody, I'm Pastor Jeff Dawes, lead pastor here at Stockbridge Community Church. And I just want to say thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope this message inspires you and encourages you. Enjoy today's message. Today we have a special guest speaker. You know, we don't have that many here at SEC, but I'm delighted today to introduce you, my friend, in just a moment. His name is Bruce Deal. He's a pastor, and he's also the founder of City of Refuge in Atlanta. And you'll see a picture coming up here of uh, the complex that they have designed. And, and this ministry is one of those that we support. It's one of our ministry partners. We, you know, one of our mission goals of giving this year is uh, the $150,000, and we want to help this ministry uh, with some of that. And so I've asked him to come today and share with you because the ministry that he started, you know, it's one thing to, uh, to go downtown Atlanta and begin to, to pastor a church and think, okay, well, I'm going to just be able to have people drive into the city and come to my church, and then I'm just going to feed the homeless and give them a hot biscuit every once in a while. But, but that's not what Pastor Deal did. He went down. He saw the need of the homeless, and he said, God, how can we change their lives? And so instead of giving them just a hot meal occasionally, he, gave them the, he gives them the opportunity to change their life. And uh, over 24 years, he's given his life down to the city of Atlanta. This ministry has grown. He, they rehabilitated many, many homeless people. People got them off the streets and back into a job and working. And uh, matter of fact, then now they're working with the, the sex trafficking industry as far as getting women out of that. Uh, industry and and they have a housing project uh, place for them to go with their children and get rehabilitated and and it, it's just so it, you wouldn't believe it I mean I thank God for people like this because you know when we say our dollars are doing what we can't do and they're going we can't go well I want to tell you what that ministry I couldn't do it I just couldn't do it that's not who God's called me to do and I couldn't do it I'm just not comfortable in that environment but thank God for people like Pastor Bruce Steele that God's called. Would you help me welcome today my friend, Pastor Bruce Steele, today? Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for the opportunity to be here. Thanks, Pastor Jeff, for the opportunity. I'm always honored and humbled to be given an invitation to speak in somebody else's house. She says to him, we're waiting on the Messiah to come. And to this woman, the woman at the well been married five times, Jesus says, I am he. He hasn't declared this to anybody else yet. Right. And so he says, I'm he. So it's just interesting to me that the longest conversation one-on-one is with a woman that's been married five times and that this is the first place that Jesus declares to be Messiah. Four things I see in this passage of scripture that will move us into our conversation about some of the work we do is the first thing I see in John chapter four is that Jesus is intentional, right? So the scripture tells us beginning at the, uh, the book of John uh, chapter four, that the disciples of John the Baptist and Jesus have started comparing notes with each other to see who is baptizing the most people. Not much change in the church world, has there? So, so they're comparing notes, who's baptized the most, right? And Jesus gets irritated with that and he moves away from that and he goes to Samaria and he sends the disciples to town to buy food, right? He's intentionally by himself. He intentionally shows up at the well at noonday because he knows the woman is coming at noon because she doesn't want to be there when anybody else is there. 
All the other women come to the well early in the morning to draw water for the day, to cook with and to clean with. She comes in the middle of the day because she knows she's an outcast. She knows she's been married five times. She knows people look down on her and she knows that she is not accepted. Jesus is intentional by showing up by himself at the well at the time that she's going to come. I would challenge all of us today to be intentional in our relationship with Jesus Christ and intentional on how we express that to others. I think I am guilty in the church world at, at times, we're guilty of accidental ministry, which is still good, but we bump into somebody in need and we respond at that moment. We see an opportunity to respond at that moment. It's a better plan, I think, to rise in the morning and go, today I'm gonna to do this, this, and this for the kingdom of God. And along the way, he may introduce some other opportunities as well, but I think we have to be intentional. The second thing is Jesus is practical. So when she shows up at the well, Jesus does not declare himself to be the son of God. He does not declare himself to be the Messiah. He doesn't tell her he can meet all of her needs. When she shows up, he says to her, will you give me a drink of water? He makes her feel valuable as soon as she shows up. She's the one that's been married five times. He's the one that's pure. But he says, will you give me a drink of water? He's very practical. Sometimes as sons and daughters of God, I think we lose our practicality in life. We become so theologically uh, educated, we think, and we try to present justification and regeneration and all this kind of thing to the people around us. And they're just going, well, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, well, I need this. And we're just not very practical, right? Uh, my girls and I, my girls are all runners, uh, ran cross country in high school and track and, and I run with them. We have a lot of fun doing that as a family together. And so we've run the Peachtree Road Race for about 20, I've run about 22 years now in a row, I think. And, uh, and so if you know, it's 4th of July and it's, you know, it's 55,000 runners running down Peachtree Street in Atlanta. Every year for 22 years, the same thing has happened. We start our race, we come down, we're about a mile in, there's a Publix on the right, there's a Moe's on the left, and there's these two guys that set up at this Moe's on the left with a box that one of them stands on. They're both in suits and ties. They got a megaphone speaker system and they're preaching at us. They got this big sign that they hold up that says, repent or you're going to hell. And this guy's preaching at us as we run down the street. And I'm like, why do I have to go to hell for running down Peachtree Street this morning? <laughs> why? Well, I didn't know this was a sin, right? And so they're preaching and they're yelling and they're screaming. I mean, it's like, and, and, and I, in, in my 22 years, and I'm not being facetious here, my 22 years, I've never seen one runner hang a left and go over and talk to him about Jesus. Everybody just runs by. And you can see people just looking, there they are again. And it's 80 degrees at seven o'clock in the morning on the 4th of July and they're wearing wool jackets. I'm like, y'all just not very intelligent. And they're just... <laughs> And there's nothing practical about it. And I thought, you know what? If you would hand me a bottle of water, that's practical, right? right? If you had a fan and you wanted to chase me for the next five miles with a fan, that's practical. I was running a half marathon in Denver one time and so I made a bad mistake. I was ready physically, but I didn't plan for the elevation and the time change and all that. So I got in on Friday night, like at nine o'clock. The next morning, I'm on a bus at six o'clock going to the start line. At seven o'clock, we start running 13.2 miles. About four miles in, I decided I am dying, right? In Denver, Colorado. And I started planning when I knew I was dying, how I would fall, right? Because what I wanted to do was hit my knee, then my shoulder. I didn't want to mess my face up for the funeral, right? So I want to make sure it felt like this. 
but I just kept going about mile number 10, and this was raising money for missions about number 10. The music's playing, and there's this sweet little lady about 80 years old, and she's got some water, and as I ran by, I had dehydrated. I'd stopped sweating. My nose is bleeding. My hands and feet are swelling. I know I'm in trouble. I run by, and she goes, Jesus is with you. And I looked at her, and I said, you think he wants to run a while? We're just not very practical sometimes. We bless people with our words, but with not that material needs that they meet. We say we're gonna pray for them, but we choose not to give them what they have been praying for. So Jesus is intentional, he's practical, and then he's relational. He says to her, go get your husband. He starts talking about her family. And she goes, well, I, I, I don't have a husband. He goes, oh, you have spoken well. You've had five husbands, the one you're living with now is not your husband. He starts a conversation about her family, right? He gets to know something about her. He already knew, but he wants her to talk about this. I think it's inappropriate sometimes for us to name the name of Jesus to those that we don't yet know their name. I think it's important to be personal and relational before we start to be eternal. Right? Because eternal comes in this story. Jesus is intentional and he's practical and he's relational, which leads to him declaring to be Messiah and she going back to her town and bringing all these people to come hear what he said. Eternal eventually happens. <coughs> but the intentional, the practical, and the relational has to happen first. Now, let me leave you with this on this story as we move along. Jesus says to her, you're right. You're not married and you've been married five times. A man you live with, not your husband. And we have always, my dad was a pastor. Love my dad, incredible man of God. I've listened to sermons about John chapter four all of my life. And then every time I've ever heard the sermon, they talk about the fact that Jesus was compassionate to this adulterous woman or to this woman who's been unfaithful to five husbands or to this woman that sleeps around. And we've always painted her in a negative light. And, and I, I wondered as I was reading scripture one day, I went, you know, what if this is not a bad woman? What if she's just had a bad life? Because the greatest thing, the most important thing a woman could give her husband in this day and age was a child, especially a male child. And what if, hypothetically, this wasn't a bad adulterous sleep around woman? What if this woman was barren? And five men had put her away because she couldn't give them a child. Paints a picture in a whole different light, doesn't it? Sometimes we automatically assume. We begin to think things that aren't true just because perception seems to be a certain way. Grew up in a pastor's home in Virginia. Dad was a wonderful man. Uh, he grew up in the mountains of West Virginia, the alcoholic grandfather, uh, very abusive. And so uh, dad ran away a lot, did a bunch of stuff, went to the military, came back, went to this little church of God in Conklintown, West Virginia, when he was like 21 years old, accepted the Lord, filled with spirit, got called to preach. And uh, very legalistic little church in the mountains where everything was a sin. And so that's what I sort of grew up with for a long time in my life. Everything was a sin. So I was 13, my brother was 12. I looked at him, I said, we're going to hell. Ain't nothing we can do about it, brother. <laughs> ain't no way we living up to this. So we just lived like that for a while. So anyway, uh, came to the place of grace, of understanding that I serve God not to impress him because I am impressed with him. 
whole different story right there, right? And so, uh, so as a senior in high school, felt the Lord called me to go into ministry, went to Lee University and got my degree in pastoral studies and all that. Went in traditional ministry for about 14 years. So I was a youth pastor and associate pastor in Florida, Virginia, and Georgia. And uh, in 1992, moved to Atlanta, north of Atlanta, to be youth pastor at a church and started taking youth groups and single groups downtown to work at a little church, do feed ministry, clothing ministry, that kind of thing. About five years in, Ryan and I had four daughters at the time. They were seven, five, three, and one. And uh, the bishop called and he said, hey, can we talk to you? So he met with me and my pastor at the time. And he said, we got this little church downtown. We think we probably should close the church. It's down to just a few folks, no money. The building's in disrepair. The pastor's been gone six months. We can't get anybody to pastor the church. What do you think? And so Daryl, my pastor, said, yeah, we'll sponsor Bruce for six months. I said, sure. Mention it to Rhonda. She said, it's fine. So I thought, this is good. Go down for six months, speak every Sunday, get some more business acumen, you know, do all that stuff uh, before whatever the Lord has next for us. So that was the plan. So we go down our fifth or sixth Sunday, this young lady walks in, she looks a little rough, stood out in the crowd at the end of the service, she walked down the aisle, she was weeping, took me by the hands and these were her words, I've been hooking and stripping 14 years, can you help me get out of the life? And I said, yes, and I had no idea what yes meant. But it was an invitation from the Lord. I just said yes. And so we did some things for her that week. She showed back up the next week. She brought Bill with her. He was a 52-year-old alcoholic. He said hadn't been in church in 30 years and was one of her paying customers. And during the week, she said to him, I found something I think you need. Come go to church with me. Wow. And he did. They sat on the second row, right where he's sitting right here, and Bill sat on the aisle. We started singing that little chorus, I need you more, more than yesterday, more than words can say. And about five minutes in, Bill fell out in the center aisle, started wailing out loud, crying, and wouldn't stop. So finally, I slowed the music down, went down, I go, can I help you? He said, well, I think I need Jesus. And I said, well, we usually do that at the end of service, right? <laughs> I got a, got a plan, I need to invite you to Jesus, right? And he's like, no, I need him now. I said, all right. <laughs> so, so Bill accepts Jesus. And I'm like, well, this is cool. While we're closing the church, people getting saved, right? The next Sunday, four more drug addicts and alcoholics, homeless people showed up. And I'm like, huh. The next Sunday, 10 more showed up. I walk in four months into a six-month assignment, and there are 100 drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless folks, prostitutes have invited each other to church. And they're looking at me going, can you help us? And I looked at Rhonda and I drew on my deep theological seminary training. I said, we've been conned by God, woman. <laughs> this right here is not right. From the mountains of Virginia, everybody, everybody knew the church I was going back to in Virginia. It's a great church up in the mountains, 500 mountain folk. I'm kin to 100 of them. And so <laughs> everybody knew that's where I was going to go pastor. I'd be there 25, 30 years. I was going to kiss the babies, bury the dead, do the weddings, hunt, fish, eat fried chicken, chocolate pie, and watch Andy Griffith two hours a day. I knew what life was supposed to be. And here's God going, how about hanging out in the hood for the rest of your life? <laughs> I went, hey, God, you know I'm white, right? <laughs> so... So next thing I know, we resign our position except to pastor this little church. We accept this pastorate and, and we know it's not going to look like regular church, right? And so we start this thing called City of Refuge. And a couple months later, Rhonda called me, my wife Rhonda called me out of her prayer time and she was weeping and she said, we have to be intentional. John chapter four. I said, what's that mean, darling? 
She said, if we're really going to impact the city, we got to move to the city. If we want people to trust us, people in crisis to trust us, we have to show them that we trust them by living among them. Amen. I went, well, my Lord, I hate when you talk to God. <laughs> so, so we started looking around and, and, and the neighborhoods we could afford to live in, we weren't sure we should move the girls in because every other house was a trap house, which 95% of y'all don't have any idea what I'm talking about right now. But anyway... Um, I'm like, I'm not sure we should move our little girls in beside his trap house. So we look around. Long story, a little bit shorter is, is I just said to Rhonda, finally, I said, you know what? The third floor of this 65-year-old church building's empty. And she said, well, let's move in. So we move our girls into this 65-year-old church building city, downtown, it's inner city of Atlanta on the third floor. Uh, and you know, when they build churches, they don't put bathtubs in them. It's the weirdest thing to me. But anyway, uh, for the first, first six months, my girls took a bath in a number two wash tub. We fill up with a green water hose. First night we lived in the church, crack attic, tried to steal the van, uh, but he was so high, hot wired the windshield wiper motor. I came out the next morning, the van's still there and the windshield wiper's going like this. I said, it's gonna be a hoot right here, woman. And so uh, the first time we filled up the baptismal pool, back at the stage, we got a baptistry pool. And uh, first time I filled it up, you have to crawl under the stage, turn on the water. I crawled under the stage. There's a homeless dude living under the stage in the sanctuary. Full bed roll, hot plate, radio. I'm like, scoot over, buddy. I got to turn on the water. So uh, turn on the water. We, we lived in, we started taking in little girls whose moms were going to rehab or to jail. We'd care for them. When mom would get out, she didn't have anywhere to go. She would move in. Had 23 women living with me at one time. I'm only 30 years old. This is what you look like when you have 23 women living with you at one time. But, so we lived there for six years. My fifth daughter was born while we lived there. We're broken into 34 times, three vehicles stolen, guns, knives, fist fights. I've been in superior court with guys that tried to kill me. And it was just more fun we'd ever had in church before. <laughs> Nobody's fussing about the color of the carpet. The music's too loud, contemporary, traditional. Like, you didn't get shot, I didn't get shot. Hallelujah to the Lamb. <laughs> right? Just awesome. Radical transformations, crack addicts, heroin addicts, criminal. I mean, just crazy things happening. God just blowing this thing up. We're just looking around going, what in the world? Growing for about three years, three, four years in, churches packed with people. About 50, 60% of them have been incarcerated at some point in their life. Some of them are running from incarceration. You know, and the church is growing and it's good. I'm still the white dude from the suburbs and they're still trying to figure out while I'm here. Right? They like it, but they can't quite understand it. I'm not quite as meshed as I want to be. And so then there was this altercation that took place. Another individual and I, it's fist fight. So anyway, um, and, uh, and the cops had to be called. And so the uh, female officer came and she interviewed us both. And she said, well, I don't know who's right and wrong. So I got to arrest you both. And so I said, well, whatever you got to do. So she arrests the other guy, puts him in the car, writes up my arrest warrant. She goes, let's go. We're walking out. My Rhonda and the girls are on the steps going, daddy, go to jail. And uh, wasn't that funny. But anyway, we're... Uh, Walking out and the day sergeant pulls up, shift sergeant pulls up and goes, what's going on? She told him, she, he said, well, you're not arresting the preacher. We knew each other. She goes, yeah, I am. He said, well, Bruce, you're under arrest. He said, I'm releasing you on your own recognizance, be at court nine o'clock in the morning, superior court for probable cause here and the judge will figure it out. So I said, okay. So I go to court the next morning. The judge throws out the case against me. I go back and word gets out in the street that I've been arrested, Right. And so Jake is a buddy of mine. We'll share a little bit more later about Jake was a buddy of mine from the streets that nicknamed me the Ghetto Rev uh, 24 <laughs> years ago. 
And then they dropped Rev, so they just call me Ghetto in the hood. So, uh, so word got out, Ghetto been arrested, right? And so I didn't realize all that, and I'm still trying to connect with all my people. And the next Sunday morning after my arrest, I walked up on stage, half my congregation stood up. I'm like, man, if I knew getting arrested is all it took to get street cred, I could have done that a long time ago. <laughs> so now I try to get arrested every three, four years just to keep that thing going. <laughs> so it just blew up, man. And all of a sudden I looked around, we're packed, this little building's people hanging off the sill. I mean, it's crazy. So I sent a real estate buddy, I said, go deeper in the bluff and find me a building. So the bluff, we're on your news every night, whether you know it or not. So the bluff is 30314, highest crime rate in the state of Georgia, highest homeless population, highest number of HIV positive cases, more men and women in jail from my zip code than the zip code in the state, 73% of my kids in a single parent household, 35% graduation rate, 60% of all the murders that occur in Metro Atlanta, 13 counties, 6 million population occur in my neighborhood. I said, that's where we want to be. So he comes back and he said, I found eight acres of land, five acres under roof, an eight foot fence with razor wire and an armed guard at the gate. And I said, well, our dreams have come true. Go, uh, <laughs> go see how much they want for that. He came back, he said, the owner said he'll take a million six hundred thousand. And my counter offer was, oh, we don't have any money. And uh, <laughs> so he turned me down for six months and six months later donated eight acres of land, five acres under roof in the middle of the hood. So I said, we got 210,000 square feet of warehouse space. We can build what I call a one-stop shop for those in crisis. We can have every resource somebody needs on one campus so they don't have to make multiple appointments at multiple agencies with multiple case managers and multiple pass forward and have to find $95 to ride Mart and have to find childcare. If they get here, we'll have everything. So I presented that to all the funders in Atlanta. They all said it's a bad idea. They said, do one thing, do it re really well. I said, our one thing is transformation through the name and the power of Jesus Christ. And that transformation means we gotta have all of these other things. And so all of these donors turned us down and so we just scraped it together and figured it out and now 18 years later, we got this incredible program on our campus this morning. 36 hotel style units, 36 homeless mothers with their children woke up in a safe, warm, clean environment, right? where they walked across the parking lot to a commercial kitchen with hot food, where in the morning they'd drop their kids off at a daycare, faith-based daycare for six weeks of age to five years of age. Then I walk down the hallway to a private Christian school where their kids will be taught the love of God and math and science at the same time. You walk down the hallway a little bit more, you'll run into our 10,000 square foot medical clinic with six medical exam rooms, two dental units, a vision component, a mental health component, nine full-time medical staff, 750 patient visits a month. They can walk across the parking lot to our vocational training center where last year we put 500 people in the workforce in auto technician, culinary arts, coding academy, cybersecurity, personal fitness trainer, giving them a path forward, a place where they can go. You walk down the hall a little bit further and you'll come to our anti-trafficking program, our survivor program, where we've now rescued and housed over 800 women who've been sexually trafficked and exploited and given them a path forward to what God has for them. We're now in nine locations around the country, four in Georgia, three in Virginia, Chicago, and Baltimore. In the next 18 months, we're opening in Dallas, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, St. Charles, Missouri, Cincinnati, Ohio. God is taking it and blowing it up in incredible, incredible ways.
And now 18 years later, after getting that building and all of those donors telling me it was a bad idea, they all think it was a good idea. And most of them actually think it was their idea. Right? And at the end of the day, we decided we're going to be intentional. We're going to live among those, right, that have the deepest level of crisis. We're not going to act like we're afraid. We're not going to act like we're better. We're just going to be there. We're going to be practical. Practical means food and clothing and shelter until you get to the place to have a conversation about their soul, right? E.V. Hill, one of my favorite preachers of all time out of South Central Los Angeles, passed away now. He said, after you have prayed for the hungry to be fed, get up and take them some food. And after you have prayed for those who don't have clothes to have clothes, get up and take them something from your closet. And after you pray for the homeless to have a house, get up and build them one. He said, you are most often the answer to your own prayer. We often pray for others to do the work of benevolence and compassion. And God is saying, there's something you can do. There's a place you can go. There's somebody's life you can impact. So we decided we're going to be intentional and practical and then relational. We're going to know your name. We're going to know where you came from. We're going to know your life story. We're not going to act like that we are your answer. So when people walk onto our campus, we wrote a little book called Trust First. And we decided we're going to trust you until you prove to us that we can't trust you. You see, that's different from the way the world works. Everywhere else, we have to prove that we can be trusted and we assume that nobody can until they prove they can. We decide when you walk in our gates, you're you're being trusted till you show me that you can't. Do we get burned along the way? Well, of course we do. That's why we get robbed periodically. That's why people want to kill me periodically. That's why things happen. That's why I chase guys down the street at three in the morning with a baseball bat in my underwear. Don't think about that right now. That's why that happens. It doesn't always go the way we want it to go. But if you're intentional and practical and relational, I'm telling you, God will give you the opportunity to have an eternal conversation. I don't want to do a disservice to a human by telling them that they need a divine relationship before I know their name and where they came from and what life has dealt to them. I want to be their friend. It's the coolest thing to be people's friend that are in poverty, that are in desperation, returning citizens coming out of incarceration, that they know your name, they know who you are, right? We used we lived in that church. We get all these collect phone calls from the prison, from the jail, Fulton County Jail, Rice Street Jail, from people calling the women's prison, call us all the time. One night I get this phone call. It's a lady on the phone. She goes, this Pastor Bruce? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, my name's Linda. She starts telling me her story. And I go, hold, hold, hold on, hold on. I said, do we know each other? She said, no, sir, we've never met. I said, well, how'd you get my phone number? She goes, it's right here on the wall beside the phone in jail. (laughs) Need help? Call Pastor Bruce. Right? When your name is written on the jailhouse wall, you've you've made it in life. I'm telling you right now. It's all I need right there. When we're intentional and practical in relation, we have the opportunity to be eternal. So the first time we ever fed a meal on the street, we went downtown. I'd been downtown a couple months. We went down to feed. We set up at this table. We're feeding the people standing in line and we feed just to develop relationship, right? Triage is important if it's a journey to long-term success and empowerment, right? Triage just for triage sake is just feel good for us. All right, that's another sermon another day. Triage, as long as it's a pathway forward. So we're feeding a meal. We're, we're through the meal. I start to hear a commotion. All of a sudden, this guy and this woman are just going at it, and, uh, and they're cussing each other out, screaming and hollering. And Rufus, he leads over. He picks up a beer bottle, cracks it, and goes after her. I have to separate him. She turns and walks off. She comes back about 15 minutes later. He's still standing over there with his food. She walks over, pulls a 45, and has it right between his eyes. 
And it's my first time in the street feed. I'm like, all right, God, you got to explain this. I cook spaghetti and now I'm fixing to see somebody get shot in the head. These two things don't go together, right? So I'll walk over and they're going and, and nobody in the streets like Rufus, there's a whole other story there. But anyway, they're going, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. They, they want Gloria to kill him. And I just walk over and I don't know what to do. And so I just put my hand, I just get right down, put my hand on top of the gun, on top of Gloria's hand like this. And I just put this little gentle downward pressure and I go, you don't really want to do this, do you? We stood there and you could feel the tension and the anger. And, and after a few minutes, she finally dropped the gun, put it in her pocket and walked off. And I went, oh, and I went home and told Rhonda, I, you didn't hear God when he told us to move downtown. You were out of order, woman, right? <laughs> and uh, she said, no. And this was on Tuesday. And she said, and we're going back Thursday, All right? Because we had told them we were going to be there Tuesday and Thursday. So we went back Thursday and nobody's there. Nobody shows up. We got all the food set up and I see this guy across the street leaning against a telephone pole and I walk over and I go, hey, uh, hey, I'm Pastor Bruce. He goes, yeah, I know. I said, what's your name? He goes, my name's Jake. I said, where is everybody? He goes, well, here's where everybody is, Pastor. He said, after what happened Tuesday, nobody thought you would show back up. Wow. Now, these were his words. You got it. And I'm, he said, they thought you were like every other white preacher from the suburbs that at the first sign of trouble was going to turn around and head right back where they came from. He said, nobody thought you'd be back. And I said to Jake, we come back. And we said, he said, I'll be right back. He went out, rounded up 50 people. We had another meal. Jake named me the ghetto rep. Now it's ghetto. Jake, we took care of Jake for 13 years. Loved on him, cared for him. Crack addict, alcoholic, in and out of jail. Grew up in South Georgia on a plantation. Literally sharecropper's family. When he's 11, his dad tried to shoot him and his mother. He ran away. He started sleeping in a caddy shack over at the nearby golf course. Met some of the guys. They taught him how to caddy. Started playing golf. Became the, one of the first African-American PGA teaching pros in the country. Fell subject to alcohol and crack cocaine. And just, but he loved Ron. They loved my girls. We loved him. We'd hug him, kiss him. We'd take care of him. And we lost him a few years ago, about four, four years ago now, this June, we lost Jake. He was gone for like eight months and he finally came back and he had been arrested again and he'd been in jail for eight months. And, and Jake always said, and this is a phrase that people been in and out of jail use. He says, either you do the time or the time will do you. And he said, this time, the time did me. And he was just, he was broken. He was 70 years old. He was broken mentally, emotionally, physically. And I said, Jake, you want to move back in the warehouse? He goes, nah. He said, I can't sleep inside right now at ghetto. He said, uh, I, can I just get some food and clothes and a shower? And I said, yeah. And so we did that. And I, and I had a F-250 truck, a King Cat crew cab sitting on campus that needed some work done. He said, can I just sleep in the back seat of your truck? I said, sure. So Jake would get a shower, get something to eat, he'd sleep in the back seat of my truck. And this went on for a few weeks. And one Monday morning, Steve Grimes that works for me walked in my office. He said, hey, there's somebody sleeping in the back seat of your truck. He goes, but it's not Jake. He said, it's a great big guy. And he said, the doors are locked. I can't wake him up. He said, I don't know who it is. So we walk out. I look in the window and I look at Steve and I go, nah, it, it's, it is Jake and he's dead. And Jake climbed up in the back seat of my truck probably on Friday night and had died sometime over the weekend and his body was swollen. And so we had to call the coroners and they came out and they broke the window of the truck and the smell of death rolled out in the parking lot. And, and they just took Jake and just pulled him out and laid him in the parking lot. And they went through his stuff and they found a little, uh, little black book with a couple names, his daughter's name and such. And, and they found this little green New Testament in his pocket. And they said, you want this? I said, yeah, I'll put it in my pocket. 
And, and I stood there and I just went, okay, I, gotta, I, I don't understand this, God. We were intentional and practical and relational. And now my buddy Jake has died in the backseat of my truck after 13 years of investment. You're going to have to explain this to me. And I got a little angry and I got a little disappointed. I got a little frustrated. So they put Jake and took him away. And his funeral was a few days later and I didn't go. I didn't really have any reason not to go. I, just, I didn't want to go say goodbye to Jake that I'd loved for 13 years that I had been intentional and practical and relational with. My brother went, spoke, and a bunch of our staff was there, and, and we took care of the end of Jake's life. I still couldn't quite figure it out. We've come this whole path, this whole journey, and now here's where we are. A couple months passed, I was sitting at my desk one day, then I opened the middle drawer to get something out, and that little green New Testament was laying there. And I picked it up and I started flipping through it, and uh, I noticed there was only one verse of Scripture in that whole little New Testament that was circled or underlined, and it was John 3.16. And Jake had underlined, circled John 3.16, and he had written a date beside it. And I looked at that, and I heard this from the Lord. In my spirit, Holy Spirit just said, Jake came home to die. And I realized that intentional and practical and relational had resulted in eternal Jake didn't die under a bridge. He didn't die sleeping in a cemetery. He didn't die in jail where we would never have known. Jake died at home where he had been loved and cared for and fed and clothed and loved on. And at some point in our journey together, Jake had decided that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that if Jake believed in him, he would not perish but would have everlasting life. And tears streamed down my face and I said, it's good enough to know that Jake came home to die. And I wonder this morning, who is it in your life that when it's their time to die, to die to flesh, die to sin, die to disobedience, do they know they can come home to your house, to your car, to your place of work? Can they come home to your heart? Thank you. Come on, let's give it up one more time for Pastor Bruce. You can remain standing. I just want you to know that what you do matters. What you give matters. I can't go live down there. I would be dead. You know, a little man with a big mouth would not survive down there. But God has called him to do that. And what I want you to know is this, is that you have a part in that. Because we believe that at SEC that when we give, people live. And so I want to say thank you. But I also want to ask the question, who's in your life? You know, we're about to have friend day. What an opportunity to get to know their name. You get to invite them to church, and we're going to pay for you to take them to lunch because we want you to get to know them.
It's not just come and we'll, we'll, you know, come and be my friend and we'll see you next year. No. We want you to do that. I believe the Holy Spirit's speaking to all of us today. And listen, He's calling you. You know, some of you like have been waiting on growth track. You've never been through growth track and you're scared. The Holy Spirit's calling you. Take that step. Take the step. Calling you to reach out to your friends. Take the step. You know, we listened to that story of Pastor Bruce and his life, and I've just admired. I mean, like, man, that is just amazing what God has used his life to do. But your life is just as important. The people around you are just as important. And today, I just want you to, I want to pray for you. And after I pray for you today, we're going to raise a hallelujah. Amen? Because we believe that God, we thank God for what he's doing through Pastor Bruce and our city of refuge and, and all that's going on there. And, and again, you know, those of you that I want to give, you know, that's just where part of your mission dollars go. I want to encourage you. We're, we're sowing good seeds. Amen, everybody? I want you to see where your money's going. Amen? Amen. Matter of fact, uh, you should just, you know, when you see that picture, you say it's mission dollars at work. Because a lot of people that's giving to make that happen. God touches your heart. I hope that you will give to, to missions so that we can continue to be a partner with them. I want to pray for you today. And my prayer is this, is that the Holy Spirit will talk to you about what you need to do. Your mission field is in front of you. We got to get in the game, everybody. Jesus is coming soon and we got to get to work. Amen? What family member do you have? What person at work or school or college that's a Jake that you need to build a relationship with that you can talk to them about who they are before you introduce them to you, Jesus. Amen, everybody. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, today we thank you. God, we thank you so much for Lord Pastor Bruce. God, I thank you for Lord... He never allowed anyone to kill his dream. Lord, the road that he's been on, Lord, has been very difficult. I know I've, I've been his friend for years. I understand it. I've heard the stories. But God is the people that just hang in there, that refuse to give up. God, that it seems like you work with and you work in. And Lord, I, there's a room full of people today. And there's a ton of people that are watching right now online oh God that are refusing to give up and they're refusing to give in and so God I know that you're going to move in their lives in a powerful way Holy Spirit we honor you today and Lord in order to recognize you and honor you for what you're doing and Lord the city of refuge oh God and, and in our local community here and all around the world God we want to raise a hallelujah to you and God we want to tell you how thankful we are today and so, Father, we praise you today, and we give glory and honor for all that you have done and all that you're doing. In Jesus' name. Hi, this is Pastor Jeff again. I just want to say I hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to support God's work through Stockbridge Community Church, simply go to our website at secview.net. Again, that's secview.net, and click the Give tab. We want to thank you again for being with us today. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.